2: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
3: Last night we gave a reading of mostly 19th century poetry, and um, I realised that um, I think in Russia there is a pretty clear idea of who the great 19th century poets are. Um, Many of them haven't been translated well into English before, and so we have a very poor idea of who the great Russian 19th century poets are. Um, In the 20th century, it's kind of even worse than that. I don't think, um, I think there's been so much confusion introduced by politics and all kinds of extra literary things that um, I don't think, I think it'll be a long time before anyone really has a... A clear consensus has arrived about who are the great 20th century Russian poets. What I did gradually come to feel more and more strongly um, towards the end of work on this is um, that there is an extraordinary amount of great 20th century poetry. One can't really sensibly say this kind of thing for another few centuries, but I can easily imagine that in the future, um, 20th century Russian poetry might be seen as one of the great flowerings of poetry in a European language, um, like Dante's Italy or like um, medieval Persia. But anyway, um, tonight's readings are all 20th century um, we're going to start with two poets who always have been well known um, but who've often sort of been admired for the wrong reasons or disliked for the wrong reasons. So one of them is Yesenin, who has always had a considerable popularity in Russia, um, a kind of romantic figure of a peasant poet, and he committed suicide, and he was married to Isadora Duncan. More sort of intellectual lovers of poetry have quite often tended to look down on him. And... Um, it was actually a surprise to me and um I was partly kind of helped into this by Boris um to realise, you know, just what a great poet he is and um what a kind of natural gift for singing lyrics he has and I think we've reproduced that in a few translations, so um Boris is gonna read two these two poems were written in
4: the last year of his life, actually in the last uh, two months of his life, before he committed suicide in 1925. It was a very productive year for Yesenin. The first poem, I'll have to say one introductory word about it, and it's in the notes to the volume, uh, it mentions two cards. Cards are very important for Russians. They enjoy divination uh, and they enjoy card playing and Yesenin had a reputation as a, as a uh, card player. He also had a reputation as a bit of a criminal. So there is a symbolism to these two cards. The first card that's mentioned is the Ace of Spades, which oh. is immediately evocative of Pushkin's great short story, the Ace of Sp- the, the Queen of Spades, rather. And the second card is the Ace of Diamonds, which is immediately evocative of the criminal lifestyle. The diamond shape was uh, woven onto the backs of criminals' uniforms. So it's associated with criminality. Poor poet... Was that really you, addressing the moon in rhyme? My eyes were dulled so long ago by love, by cards and wine. The moon climbs through the window frame, white light, so white it blinds you. I bet on the queen of spades, but I played the ace of diamonds. The second poem uh, was written shortly after that and really demonstrates his musical gift. Oh, to hell with this storm, damn this snow and hail, pounding on the rooftop, driving in white nails. But me, I'm not frightened, and I know my fate. My wastrel heart has nailed me to you, nailed us tight.
3: There were um, a number of deaths of poets in the 1920s that had a tremendous resonance um, in Russia. And the first was... And Akhmatova's husband, the poet Nikolai Gumilyov, who was shot by the Bolsheviks in 1921. And that happened to coincide very closely with the death, very young, though by illness, of Alexander Bloch. And that seemed like a sort of whole world had died then in 1921. And then you see in suicide in 1925 also it was an enormous shock to many, many people. And this is, my, this is Yushinian's suicide poem. Farewell, dear friend, farewell. You're present in my heart. We'll meet again, the stars foretell, though now we have to part. Goodbye for now, goodbye, dear friend no handshake, words, or grief. To die is nothing new, but then what new is left in life? And um, we're going to go on to the other poet who has always been known for a long time, Mayakovsky, but who also is, we tend to have a very kind of oversimplified picture of. We don't realise how extraordinarily gifted he was um, formally. James Womack's translations are the first ones that well actually James and Stevens' translations are the first ones um, that really kind of use rhyme wittily and intelligently like Mayakovsky himself and also Peter Orham's, who've actually got three good translators in this volume. He's often seen as a kind of revolutionary loudmouth, which he was, but he's um, much, much more varied than that. A poet capable of great delicacy and tenderness and um, intelligence. Um, so, James.
0: This is the end of a, a long poem, A Cloud in Trousers. What you need to know so far is that he's spent most of the poem attacking all the Received ideas about art and and life in general and he spent third section trying to trying to persuade this woman Maria to um, open up her front door to him. And she hasn't and so he decides that he's going to. Go off somewhere else. Maria you don't want to you don't want to. (laughs) ha! Well dark and downcast I'll take up my heart once again and carry it off, crying, like a dog carries his paw back to the kennel after it's been run over by a train. My heart's blood will make the road happy, the red flowers show bright among the dust on my coat. Like the sun round the earth, a thousand times Salome will dance round the head of the Baptist. And when my tally of years finally plays itself out, a million drops of blood will cover the road to my father's house. I'll climb up to heaven. I'll be dirty. I slept in the gutter. I'll stand next to him, bend down, and speak into his ear. Listen up, Mr. God. Don't you get bored up here in the sky, spending all day looking down? Here's a plan let's chop down that tree, the one in your garden, and make it into a merry go round. If you're omnipresent, You can get into all the cellars and bring some quality wine back up. Then maybe, just maybe, Peter the Apostle can be persuaded to lighten up. And let's get some eaves back among the heavenly host. I'll show you. This evening I'll gather the most beautiful girls from the boulevards for you. You want to? You don't want to. You shake your head, Goldilocks. Are you frowning? Do you think that all this, all this winged nonsense here has a clue about what love is. I'm also an angel. I was one back down there. I looked out through these eyes like a little lamb, but I'm wasting my sweetness on the desert air. It's like setting up a China shop and whistling for a bull. You're omnipotent and you thought up hands and you gave everybody a head or something. How come you couldn't work out a plan so we could kiss 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 without suffering. I thought you were all-powerful, the real God Almighty, but you're just a dimwit, crusty little godkin. See, I bend down and from the top of my boot pull out my shiv, my bare bodkin, you scoundrel, you with your wings. It's only in heaven you have any presence. You must be scared. Your feathers are bristling. I'll slice you from here to Alaska, you and your incense. Goodbye. They can't stop me. I may be right or wrong, but I can't settle down. Look, they've got blood all over the sky and they've beheaded the stars again. Hey you, sky, take off your hat. Can't you see I'm coming? Needs to wash out its ears. The universe is asleep and one huge ear covered in stars like fleas flops over its paws.
3: So we're now coming to the generation of poets we have heard much less about. Um, two poets who uh, knew each other well, Maria Petrova and Arsenio Tarkovsky, they're part of a generation of um, gifted lyrical poets who understood around the late 20s, early 30s, that um, there was just sort of no possibility that they, they just weren't going to be Soviet poets they and their living as verse translators. There was a vast industry throughout the Soviet period of um, people preparing literals from all the different languages of the Soviet Union, also from other European languages, and giving these to poets like Tarkovsky, Liebkin, Petrovich, Akhmatova did a huge amount of translating so did Pasternak. And most of them did. Um, but some of them, like Akhmatova and Pasternak, were known as poets. Others, and Virch was known as a translator. Only a few people, really, it was only the little circle. Akhmatova, Mandelstam, people close to her who really knew her poetry. And um, it wasn't her first book was published um, really quite late in life and... Tellingly, it was published in Armenia, where she was valued, because she translated a great deal from Armenia. There's a very fierce directness in some of these poems. Quite a lot of love poems. Love me, I am pitch black, sinful, blind, confused. But if not you, who else is going to love me? Face to face and fate to fate. See how stars shine bright in the dark sky. Love me simply, simply, as day loves night and night loves day. You have no choice. I am pure night and you pure light. That was 1942. The next poem can be read as a poem about the Khrushchev Thor and the kind of Apparent liberalisation in the mid-fifties. March saw winter gain in strength. Bitter, cold and unrelenting storms. In reckless fury, blinding spite, the wind blew only from the north. No hint of spring. Gripped by inertia, the heart slips all too close to places of no return, no self, no words, mere apathy and voicelessness. Who can bring back our sight, our hearing? Who can retrace the way to hearth and home, now that all trace of home is gone? wiped from the earth. I was hearing that last stanza in um, a Russian, a talk given by a Russian that I was finding quite difficult to understand, but that last stanza I understood immediately is tremendously powerful. Um, so, in Russian uh, so, Irina Mashinsky.
5: Um, I will read the same poem in, in Russian. And it might be interesting to note that uh, the time th- the poem was written, uh, it was March 1955, which means two years, exactly two years after Stalin's death, and one year before the um, co- uh, party congress with all the revelations for for those who didn't know. So, um, and the word... So, as Robert pointed out, is really important here. Зима установилась в марте, С морозами, с кипением в юг, В злорадном яростном азарте, Бьет ветер с севера на юг. Ни признака весны, И сердце достигнет роковой черты, Во власти гибельных инерции бесчувствия и не моты кто речь вернет глухонемому слепому кто покажет свет и как найти дорогу к дому которого на свете нет
4: love poem from the 1970s very late
5: words lying empty
4: without breathing that don't know why they exist at all words with no goal words with no meaning that shelter no one from the cold and haven't fed a single soul words of impotence of the weak, words that don't dare too shy to speak they give no heat they shed no light but with an orphan's grief go mute not knowing they're mutilated
3: and um the other poet I've just mentioned, Arseny Tarkovsky, many of you will know a little of his poetry from the films made by his son Andrei. He is increasingly being well translated into English. In a moment, Irina will read the poem that she and Boris translated together, which won was first prize. Yes, which won first prize at the um, Brodsky Spender Prize a couple of years ago. Um, And actually the results of this year's Brodsky Spender Prize have just very recently been published. And um, there are two Tarkovsky translations, one among the prize winners and one among the um, honourable recommendations by by Peter Oram, whose translations we've got quite a lot of in this book. Um, So he is someone who um, a lot of people uh, realizing what a fine poet he is in his own right, and um, succeeding in translating him. So, um.
5: uh, incidentally, uh, Tarkovsky was a friend of Petrovich and he also was a translator. He translated during those years when one could not publish one's own poems and could only translate. And his first um, his first collection only appeared when he was about uh, around sixty. field hospital. The the Russian version is amazingly beautiful. Unfortunately, we do not have time for for both versions, so I'm only reading the English one. Uh, It is important to know that uh, Tarkovsky uh, fought in the war, that he returned, he he underwent multiple operations, uh, left a leg. Uh, So when you hear the line, um, trees on broken legs, it may be important to uh, Remember that, and, um, of course, it's a field hospital. They turned the table to the light. I lay upside down like meat slapped onto a scale. My soul swayed dangling on a string. I saw myself from the side balanced without make weights against a fat mass from the market. This was in the middle of a snow shield. Chipped along its western edge, Surrounded by icy swamps, By trees on broken legs, And railroads halts, With their skulls skulls cracked open, Looking black beneath their snowy caps, Some double and some triple. Time stopped that day, Clocks didn't run, The souls of trains no longer flew along the mounds, lightless on grizzled fins of steam. No gatherings of crows, no blizzards, no thaws inside that limber where I lay naked in disgrace in my own blood outside the pool of future's gravity. But then it shifted. Circling on its axis, the shield of blinding snow, a wedge of seven airplanes turned low above me, and the gauze-like tree bark stiffened on my body, where someone else's blood now ran into my veins out of a flask. And I breathed like a fish tossed on the sand, gulping the hard, earthy, mica-like, Cold and blessed air. My lips were chapped, and then they fed me with a spoon, and then I couldn't recall my name, while King David's lexicon awoke upon my tongue. Then snow melted away, and early spring stood on her toes and wrapped the trees with her green. Her chief
3: So um, one of the great discoveries for me was um, the poetry of Georgi Ivanov. Um, he was an emigre and he was the kind of one of the youngest of the Akhmist group that gathered around Gumilyov and Akhmatova. Um, many people I think of my generation were um, brought up to Detest Ivanov. He um, published a book of memoirs in Petersburg that he does actually make quite clear, or not to be taken literally, that there is sort of mixture of fiction and memoir. But um, people like Akhmatova and Nadezhda Mandelstam, who were having enough trouble with the kind of lies put about by the Soviet authorities, were just enraged that somebody cause who had the freedom to speak truthfully should be apparently kind of lying about it. And so many of us were kind of brought up to just think of him as a sort of you know contemptible, dishonest rogue. I think his reputation in the West probably wasn't helped by... Um, I mean, he died in a home for stateless people somewhere near Nice in the 1950s. It's sort of not quite the romantic end of... Um, It's not a heroic or romantic end. Um, I think if I were now, if I were choosing a little book of a 100 greatest lyric poems in Russian, less than 12 lines, um, I think probably kind of nine or 10 of them could easily be by Ivanov. He's a quite wonderful poet. Endlessly startling, an extraordinary mixture of kind of formal elegance and conversational language and very, very varied in tone. So um, much of his poetry is full of nostalgia for Petersburg and his Russian life and for Russian poetry. This is one of relatively few where he's engaging more with French culture. So um, um, behind this poem lies François Villon and his Where are the Snows of Yesteryear? Where can I look, where can I go To find that almost alpine snow All sacrificed so life can grow All turned by May to splash and flow To breath of dandelion and rose To mighty wave or shining billow Into that foolish question posed by François Villon long ago And in a very, very different tone I think this is really a kind of almost psychotic shrug of the shoulders, or pretend shrug of the shoulders, in response to kind of all the horrors of um, the mid-20th century. It really did shock me, reading it in Russian. Led by what is shining, the sleepwalker looks into a blank. Black is the death beneath him, and there's no knowing where the moon's thin ledge will slide him, the innocent are executed in a universal night, look the other way, look into cold nothing and let its moonshine take you beyond all understanding.
5: I will read the same uh, the, the the original. It's 1948. Lunatic в пустоту глядит. Сияние им руководит. Чернеет гибель снизу. И далее угадать нельзя, куда он движется, скользя по лунному карнизу. Расстреливают плачи невинных в мировой ночи. Не обращай внимания. Смотри в холодное ничто. В постигая то, что выше понимание.
2: I'll read um, two translations of two of my translations of poems by um, Ivanov. As Roberts mentioned, um, one of the characteristics of Ivanov's poetry is its extreme brevity. The first translation I'll read is from his first collection that he published in exile, called Roze. Um, it was published in 1931. At 13 lines long, it counts as an epic by, um, by Ivanov standards. And it goes like this. It's good that Russia has no Tsar. It's good that Russia is just a dream. It's good that God has disappeared. That's not, that nothing's real except the stars. In icy skies, the yellow gleam of dawn, the unrelenting years. It's good that people don't exist. That nothingness is all there is. That life's as dark and cold as this. Until we couldn't be more dead, nor ever were so dark before, and no one now can bring us aid, nor even needs to anymore. Um, I think it's the brevity that is one of the things that makes Ivana so difficult to translate. I don't know if the others would agree, but I think, as a rule, um, as a rule of thumb, um, the shorter the poem. The, the more difficult it is to translate. Longer poems are easier to translate. That's, that's my view anyway. The second translation I'll read is from a later collection, which um, a, a collection called um, po- uh, Portrait Without a, Light, a Likeness, which was published in 1950. <clears throat> and it's absolutely typical. I think it's, absolute, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely quintessential, typical Ivanov. Um, like the earlier poem, it doesn't, have a, it doesn't have a title. Some things succeed and some things fail. Everything is nonsense that passes away. But even so, this reddish-brown grass, which grows by a gate in the fence, will last. If Russian speech has the power to go back to the land where the Nieva flows, from Paris I send these muddled words, though even to me they sound absurd. Before I finish, um, I'd like to quote a brief comment made by Professor Jerry Smith on Ivanov. Jerry Smith probably knows more than anyone in this country about Russian poetry, and he said of Ivanov, Georgi Ivanov was arguably the most important Russian poet in the world during the last 30 years of his life. Now, the last 30 years of Ivanov's life was from 1928 to 1958, and that's a period when Boris Pasternak and Anna Rachmatova were both still writing. So, as you can see, some people have a very, very high opinion of Ivanov.
3: And um, a particular thank you to Stephen, who was um, very dogged. He, he cottoned onto Ivanov's greatness long before I did, and kept him. Um, you, you,
2: you took some persuading. You, you, you <laughs> saw the
4: lighting. On. Yes, the light. The Light or the Darkness. This is a poem uh, very late in his career, written in 1956. I still find charm in little accidental trifles, empty little things, say in a novel without end or title, or in this rose now wilting in my hands. I like its moiré petals dappled with trembling silver drops of rain, and how I found it on the sidewalk, and how I'll toss it in a garbage can.
3: I'm going to throw in one more unplanned poem by Ivanov, and I think he got better and better throughout his life. And um, it's the poems he, actually, the poems that he wrote um, entirely conscious that he was dying in 1958, um, which I think are his very, very greatest poems: spring exaltation, nightingales, the moon on southern seas. They make my poor head spin with boredom. More than that, I disappear. The real me lives elsewhere, far to the north. Berlin, poor Russian Paris, filthy Nice, a dream from which I soon will find release. Petersburg, winter. Gumilyov and I walk by an ice-bound Neva bright with snow. The river Lethe, side by side, we walk and talk, as poets did so long ago. Another discovery for us, and um, a discovery for quite a lot of the Russians I've shown it to, um, is this poet Leaf Ozirov, who is an uh, honourable and... Moderately well known poet, editor, translator, teacher of translators, a good man who helped a lot of important writers into print or back into print. He got Zabalodsky published for the first time after his return from the Gulag, for example, and wrote yeah, good but fairly conventional poetry throughout his life. I may be underestimating him, there may be more that I haven't yet read. Um, but at the end of his life, he um, started working in the 1990s. He was working on these free verse poems that are um, quite unlike anything in Russian literature before them. and They have the appearance of just casual anecdote, as if he just met the guy in the pub and he starts telling you about his meeting with Pasternak or Akhmatova or some ballet dancer, you have to read them quite a few times and you keep realising that every detail is very carefully chosen and just how much they say about the person in question. Um, so a lot of them, the book is called Portraits Without Frames, he was also a good violinist and a good artist, so um, they, all of them have little line drawings which actually are extremely good. Yes, I mean, for instance, I've read his poem about Zabalotsky, about sort of three or four pages, and his 50-page essay about Zabalotsky, and the 50-page essay is a perfectly good essay. It's much more interesting than most um, literary criticism. But um, it's, you know, most of the important bits of it are in the short poem. So... um, We've given him quite a lot of space in our anthology. He was one of the people we were kind of stuffing in at the very end. What can we, what can we get rid of to make more room for? Oysiruf. And um, we're very, very keen to um, publish this collection as a whole. We're working on it. And Irina's going to read her translation of um, a poem by Akhmatova.
5: So it's it's, it's it's a free portrait of uh, an Ahmatal, uh, and I must confess that uh, it, it took some convincing. I also had to reassess uh, the 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 mere uh, uh, the the poetry, poetry quality uh, poetic quality of Leif Ozerop's work, and um, before that. To me, he was just the, uh, someone who, who was very, a very, very decent, very honorable person who uh, was very instrumental in publishing uh, Pasternak's famous collection in the mid 60s. Um, Lev Uzerow, um Anna Andreevna Akhmatova. A loose fitting robe or a house coat, or better yet, a coverall, disguises her corpulence a gift of the prison queues. Those used to her slimness cannot believe she has grown so stout. It's Akhmatova, they say, but not Akhmatova. You may not have known that I stood day after day in those long queues outside prisons, feet swelling, heart giving up, said Anna Andreevna, Passing me a photo of herself, straw-thin, lying on her stomach and touching the nape of her neck, the fringe of her little white cap, with her toes. Painters never tired of depicting her grace, her proud angularity, her bangs, the hump of her nose, the tall neck, the elongation, the length, her height. Somewhere behind her a lane of a tsars- in царское silo, by way of background, a balcony railing. The lilac coverall, its dark violet folds flow, overflow, and iridesce. Her face is pale, lit from within. I received this letter. Please read it aloud. It begins with praise, a bad sign. Better skip that, start further down. That asked me for poems. I'd send some, my new ones, of course. And what does he answer? But can we not republish some of your old ones? A pause. What can I say? See how they treat me? I'm silent. What can I say? Like some servant girl. Don't say that, I protest. Everyone knows you're an empress. Akhmatova grows quiet. She gets ready to listen. So I go on as best as I can. Of course, you're an empress. She fixes her shawl, lowers her eyelids, lifts her head. And though she doesn't say, go on, I do go on in the same spirit. Who will remember Him, this foolish editor, but every line of yours, whether early or late, will be worth its weight in gold. No, that's not right. It will be beyond price. Without turning her head, Anna Andreevna looks towards the speaker, and he notices a fleeting light of pleasure on her face. Beautitude. Every single person, shepherd or prime minister, stoker or poet, wants to hear the word. They have been waiting to hear all their lives. As they grow older, people want to know that their life was not been lived in vain.
3: It's a wonderful combination in all his work of a kind of clarity of perception and a kind of generosity of spirit. So um, we're finishing with um, Varlam Shalamov, who um, in Russia is absolutely without question accepted as the great writer about the Gulag for his short stories. About the labour camps of Kalerma in the far northeast of the Soviet Union, where he spent about 17 years. He himself attached at least equal importance to his poetry. His poetry has been neglected, I think it's been underrated. I think that is beginning to change now. I think he's an extraordinary lyric poet. So one thing that he does is to... I mean, he, he knew Russian poetry really, really well. Um, he knew the poetry of the Silver Age of the early 20th century, the symbolists, really well. Um, they have all their sort of themes, their sort of semi-mystical themes of sort of, does the world really exist or is it just a dream, this kind of thing. Um, which can be a bit self indulgent. In, in poems like this, these sort of themes acquire a, a different kind of reality. This is a man who spent nearly 20 years in the, more or less, in the Arctic, doubting whether or not sort of European culture really exists. Memory has veiled much evil. Her long lies leave nothing to believe. There may be no cities or green gardens, only fields of ice and salty oceans. The world may be pure snow, a starry road, just northern forests in the mind of God, and a wonderfully simple, very, very poem that works perfectly at a realistic level and has huge resonance. Theme again of four, how does one become unfrozen? By candle light, in midday dark, I'll warm your words beside the stove. Frost's frozen them. Frost's wordless spell has made your letter dumb. The letters melt, drip tears, calling me home. And um, I shall finish with a, a rather mysterious poem. I'm not sure whether the address that is going to be mentioned is God, or an audience. And so I keep going. Death remains close. I carry my life in a blue envelope. The letter's been ready ever since autumn. Just one little word, it couldn't be shorter. But I still don't know where I should send it, if I had the address. My life might have ended. So that's just a very, very small sample of the... Well over half our anthology is actually taken up with kind of the 20th century or the first sort of 60 or 70 years of the 20th century. I think the poets that it's left me most wanting to read more of are um, Ivanov, Osirov, And also um, the poet that we'll be reading in um, a reading we're doing in a couple of days' time in Oxford, Boris Slutsky, but we've left him out tonight. But um, that gives me the opportunity to um, mention among the different books on sale, um, this is a very, very good book by Jerry Smith, whom Stephen mentioned a little while ago. Um, It's a kind of model example of introduction to a Russian poet, a kind of mixture of translation, biography, commentary, all kind of very seamlessly welded together. And um, there's also this little book that um, Boris has translated together with Irina by Irina's late husband, Oleg Vruch. Very delicate, complex little stories. And um, books by Irina in Russian... And um, this Cardinal Points anthology, which is um, the brainchild of Irina and Oleg Vulv. Um, it's largely a poetry, but many other things as well. Um, an English language offshoot from sort of Russian language publishing they were doing on the east coast of the States. And um, Boris and I gradually sort of got recruited into this project and so this is really kind of where the, the origin of us working together on the anthology. So um, thank you very much to the bookshop um, and um, thank you all of uh, readers and listeners. And um, we've kept extraordinarily well to our timing, so um, we have got plenty of time for discussion.
1: Really, just, uh, just a comment and perhaps a, a short question. It's really fantastic to have such an exciting anthology of so much uh, new material. So often, anthologies come out and it's a sort of quirky view of a particular poet on the state of the art. In, in the nation. But this is ju- this is just absolutely wonderful. Now, you've concentrated on the 20th century, but I just wanted to sort of mention that there's also, you know, the pre twent from Pushkin onwards, it really is, it's terrific, and I particularly appreciate the um, new translation of Pushkin's The Bronze Horseman, which you have Stanley Mitchell, the late Stanley Mitchell, and um, Anthony Wood. I don't know whether you want to say anything about that.
3: Um, well, thank you for mentioning it. Certainly, um, it's, it's one of the glories of the anthology, I think, to have um, a great translation of um, what many people see as Pushkin's masterpiece, The Bronze Horseman. Um, there's kind of two really great poems by Pushkin, a longer, Eugene Onegin, Yevgeny Onyegin, which the late Stanley Mitchell translated brilliantly. Uh, really great, you know, one of the great. First translations into English um, and is published by Penguin Classics a few years ago. And um, it is, um, I mean, I am sad and ashamed that I was um, a bit slow and hesitant making up my mind um, how much space, you know, questions of space and so on. I was a bit slow to um, commission Stanley to translate The Bronze Horseman for our anthology. And um, as it happened, he um, translated the prologue, which is about the first quarter of the poem, and um, then died, aged eighty, of a heart attack. Um, after I had, I had just asked him to translate the rest of the poem, but um, he'd only done a few more lines, and um, and Anthony was just picked up where he left off, and. Um, Anthony Wood has been translating Pushkin for decades many decades and just getting better and better at it and um, I think it's the greatest of Anthony's Pushkin translations and um, he has now gone back, I mean he has done his own version of the the prologue which he'll be publishing, he's doing a Bronze Horseman and other narrative poems by Pushkin for Penguin Classics which will um, be coming out, I'm not quite sure Probably another couple of years or so. But um, no, I was very, very excited indeed to receive Antony's draft of of that. So thank you for mentioning it.
5: I want to add that um, when uh, Evgenia Yegin came out, uh, we asked Stanley to write a a short um, reflection uh, on his work. And when translators work with with the text, they actually lived with this text for years, and in Stanley's case it was 20 years, yeah, I believe, about 20 years.
3: Yeah, not equally all the time, but 20 years. On and off.
5: So he wrote, and we asked that this um, piece be not academic, and just whatever comes to mind, and he wrote a very, I would say, confessional, very intimate essay which we published in our first, very first issue of Cardinal Points. And we're honored to, 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 to have started uh, Cardinal Points with such an, uh, such an extraordinary It is a deeply
3: moving essay, and thank yes. you for mentioning it. And it's this. available online,
4: so you can easily find it.
5: Um, um, I wonder, in your opinion, how well do Russians look after their 20th century poetry? Now, uh, whether they, I wonder whether they produce good quality publications or good editions, uh, you know, looked after by uh, qualified people who who know what they are doing. So, in your opinion, please.
3: Um, We may have um, several answers to that. I mean, my answer is that um, um, a lot of things in Russia, uh, or perhaps most things are uh, done uh, extraordinarily badly. And then you have um, these little tiny islands appear here and they are of quite, quite extraordinary excellence. And um, there are several, I mean, a number of Russian writers, um, Plata, Andrei Platonov, the prose writers, benefiting from extraordinary conscientious, careful editing. You know, there's wonderful additions with all his variants and deletions and so on. An absolute model which is hard to conceive of happening in the Anglophone world. And um, yes, um, I mean, this um, edition of Georgi Ivanov, which is quite recent. When is it published? 2005 and revised in uh,
4: 2009. It's Um, a spectacular edition.
3: It's an excellent edition, really, really. Done with real scholarship and love.
2: It's it's published in a series though, which is a continuation of the um, the famous Soviet Ivljatnica Poeta. Большое. yeah.
4: There's
5: a Mali
3: here as well. Isn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to add anything, Irina?
5: No, I agree that it's very hard to generalize as always. Mm-hmm.
4: Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, the Soviet editions were spectacular, except for all the missing parts. Uh, so <laughs> uh, at least now we have all the parts um, uh, and uh, one thing I, I would like to say is that uh, the uh, the Internet is a remarkable resource for uh, those old Soviet editions there's a great website called FEB, Feb web uh, which uh, gives you a, a wonderful wonderful uh, online resource of all of the great scholarly editions uh, not all of the great scholarly editions but many of the ones that you would want to find uh, so uh, the work is more accessible than it's been in a long time.
2: Can I, can I just say, um, I, I'm not sure what the publishing conditions for poetry are in contemporary Russia now, but um, I, I, rem- I remember when I was a student in Moscow in the early 80s, the thing that struck me was how extraordinarily popular poetry was among ordinary readers. Um, I mean, you, you'd be traveling on the tube and you'd see people kind of reading, you know, immersed in volumes of poetry, which always used to be carefully carefully covered in paper, they used to take immense care over these things. Yeah. I remember um, once, uh, one, one weekend, a friend of mine um, who knew that I was doing research on uh, Marina Tsvetaeva, she said, um, she mentioned that there was a, a poetry reading of, uh, of Tsvitaeva um, at the university on Saturday evening at 8 o'clock. And she asked me if um, I'd be interested in going, so I said, sure. And I remember thinking, we, we, we'd be bound to get tickets because, I mean, a poetry reading at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, it's not going to be a huge draw. Um, she came back a couple of days later and said, I'm sorry, I couldn't get tickets, it's sold out. Um, so that's the kind of level of interest there used to be in um, poetry in the, um, in, in the Soviet period. In, in certain
0: poets, I'd say. I mean, the... Um the 13 volume collected works of Mayakovsky that was published in the 1950s came out in an edition of 100,000 copies and was a, you know, publicly promoted and so on. And they're currently doing a 20 volume collected works, which, as Buddy says, will contain all the bits that they, they, they didn't put in the, the Bowderize version, and that's an edition of 600 copies. Yeah. So, you know, there's publishing pressures as well.
2: The great favourite, though, in Soviet times, in my experience, was um, yesenin He was the one that the ordinary readers used to particularly love. Um, I always remember if you if you went to visit a, a Soviet family, even if it wasn't a particularly literary intellectual family, you could always be sure to find two two at least two volumes of poetry on the bookshelves. One would be Pushkin, and the other one would be yesenin He had a he, he occupied a strange kind of um, position in Russian culture. As, as Robert mentioned earlier, he was always kind of looked down upon yes. by academics and critics. Um, they kind of tended to sneer at him. But ordinary Russian readers, um, he, he was the one that they, they warmed to, that they, they, they really loved. Didn't uh,
1: Harold Macmillan once say that throughout the British Empire, you go to a, into a house
0: and there were three books? The Bible,
2: Shakespeare, and a
3: collection of Kipling. Yeah, sounds like a, a, a similar
0: kind
2: of thing. He, 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 he occupied a bit, yeah, that kind of similar position. Or I, I sometimes think, I mean, the, the comparison is a weird one in a way. Yeah. Um, he was a bit like um, John Batchman
4: uh-huh. right. Oh yes, yeah. I it's
2: mean, it, it, Very on, <laughs> on, 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 on on the surface. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't imagine two two characters, two two writers more different. From Mutatis me. mutandis, yeah. yeah. But in terms of the position that they occupied in the culture. Um, uh, There there, there was a similarity, I think.
5: Mm -hmm. I would say, not necessarily with Pushkin, I would say uh, Yesenin certainly was a must, and next to him, Amar Hayam. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Somehow it worked well together.
2: Robert Burns as well. In 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 uh, uh, Marshak's translation. Translation. Which which, which I thought was a a, a testimony to the power of translation. Yes. The the, the reputation that um, Robert Burns had, um, in, in particular in the Soviet Union. Um, in, 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 translated by the work of a very well-known translator, who some people, a lot of people, criticize. I think because he, he took liberties, didn't he? Yes, he did.
4: Yes, but but uh,
5: good liberties. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they worked. I mean, people read yeah. his translations, and exactly. you know, they, they 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 meant
2: something to
3: people. Absolutely. Um, more questions. Thank you very much. This is great. Uh, for for those of us who don't speak Russian, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of translating from Russian? into English when you're dealing, particularly with poetry and some of the, the formal conventions of Russian and, and how that can be tricky when, it, when you're translating into, into English. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think so. um, I always get completely paralyzed by this kind of very generalized, general questions about how does one translate something. I can sort of talk happily for yeah. ages about with um, some sort of trying to find the right version of a single line of a poem, but um, what to say in answer to a... I mean, one can only say things, I suppose, that are, are sort of a dull general, which is um, I... you can see from the... if you look through the anthology that we have favoured translations um, that use meter and rhyme um, although in some cases it may be more a matter of hinting at meter and rhyme. It's obviously naive to think that, say, four-foot iambics with alternating masculine and feminine rhymes are going to have exactly the same effect in English as they would have in Russian. So to kind of insist on precisely reproducing the exact form is completely bonkers. I mean, it just is infinitely easier to far more Russian words rhyme than do English words you know they have rather a small number of, of vowel sounds in Russian for a start um, they don't have our huge range of diphthongs um, so to yeah, insist on full rhyme rather than kind of following people like Yeats and Wilfred Owen in using half rhyme would, would be crazy I think there are quite a, quite a variety of um, approaches I and mean, I think probably um, Stephen probably has observed meter and rhyme pretty strictly in um, in all your translations in this anthology.
2: In in the Ivanov translations, in yeah. particular, because I, I I take the view that in his poetry, in particular, um, um, rhyme and meter does play a very a very prominent role. I
3: mean, it's um, not just there people. are some, whereas there are some. I mean, I have two, but there have been some poems surprisingly, actually, a few poems of Akhmatova's where the the kind of, the line of thought seemed so precise that um, it just, it it, it seemed, well I couldn't reproduce it without deviate, without some deviation if I was going to use (coughs) rhyme and it felt more important to actually keep to that sort of rather bare, simple thought and um, it makes better sense if I actually read the poem I'm thinking of and um, it'll take me a moment to find and um, I've might have been sometimes write very very simply and um, kind of just reproducing that simplicity and tone seems more important than anything and um, so this is a First World War poem she gives this a location even 1915 St Petersburg Trinity Bridge We had thought we were beggars with nothing at all. But as loss followed loss and each day became a day of memorial, we began to make songs about the Lord's generosity and our bygone wealth. Just any sort of, any extra ornament or anything anything that would have interfered with that. It's got such a clear movement, it seemed... Um, they could. I, I couldn't make it work in any other way, and I feel it does work that way. But yeah. if you'd asked me if I'd, in abstract, I'd prefer to translate than to meter and rhyme.
2: I, I think you have to make a judgment um, on on each individual poem. I mean, some poems you can translate without using rhyme and meter. Um, others as I said before rhyme and meter just seems to be absolutely essential it's part of the structure um, and Ivanov is a, is a case in point I mean there are some Ivanov poems which if you translate them into prose you're just left with a, a series of non sequiturs um, a series of kind of statements that <clears throat> don't seem to have any particular logical, logical connection to each other um, and the thing that kind of holds them all together in, 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 a, in an in Ivanov poem in Russian is the rhyme and the meter um, so it, it, it varies from poem to poem. I think I think there are no you know, there there are no general rules. You just yeah. have to kinda of
4: decide as you go along. Yeah, and some in some poems music is the logic. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah, precisely yeah, what yeah. happens in Ivanov. Yeah. yeah.
5: There is this pit in every mo- in, in every poem, this little pit, you know, the core. So you have to find this pit. Yeah. And the way you find it, it doesn't really matter. The the very way you find the spit. It could be through the meter, different meter, when you travel into a different uh, realm of, of a different language where meters are heard differently, or this kind of rhyming, again, against the background of the rhyming tradition of this country, right? There are so many things, but I absolutely agree with Stephen that each poem is a, is a creature, and you, you do not approach like, you do not approach human beings with the same right attitude. Uh, it's the same thing. Same, same same is true for poems. Well,
4: Pound has said that poetry is language charged to the highest possible degree, to the utmost possible degree. I think translation is reading charged to the utmost possible degree. It's an act of profound understanding or attempting to understand and to sympathize with the speaker and to identify to some degree. Uh, and once you've manage to do that, even if objectively you're mistaken about the meaning of the poem. Once you've managed to somehow get a sense, a full sense of who stands behind this piece, then you can begin to, to fashion a poem in another language. I yes. well,
1: May I use this opportunity to mention that for those of you who are interested in translation, next month the, one of the best Russian translators of English poetry, Grigory Krushkov, will be given a talk on the topic Mystery of Translation or One for All in the Waterstone, Piccadilly so please do come on the 27th of April next month and the second um, little point, um, previous question about the state of uh, contemporary modern Russian poetry now uh, just it would be suitable to mention that apart from uh, publishing houses, there are plenty, still dozens and dozens of so called thick journal, Tolste Jornale, like Znamins, Novy Mir, and almost in every big city there is such thick journal where you can find uh, a section of poetry. So modern poetry is still a sort of active and published well.
0: Obviously, Markovsky was uh, a committed revolutionary, or at least committed to the revolution for his whole life, but it seems like there's often a kind of Desire to separate his poetry from his politics, um, including recent biography, Youngfeld um, biography. I just wonder, really, like, how do you feel his politics um, affected his poetry and and, and his popularity? Because it sounds like, obviously, there's been there's a huge gap between the you know fall, uh, the before and after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, so yeah, do you feel you know, when, when you approached it? Do you have a particular attitude to his politics, or uh, you know? Um, I think I have a an advantage as a as any translator of Molokovsky does, who doesn't sit down to translate twenty volumes of collected poetry and prose, in that you can choose the good bits and leave the bad bits out. How you decide what the good bits are and what the bad bits are is, 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 is another question. Um, Mayakovsky is a very interesting example, though, of a poet, as you say, in whom it's impossible to separate the, the politics and the poetry and in whose, in whose life in general it's impossible to separate the, the politics and the poetry. I mean, you just need to think about the sort of hub of ideas relative to his suicide. Was he thinking that I mean there's there's lots of speculation, of course. Was he was he upset with what was happening with with Russia or was he upset because he had been unlucky in love again for the the fiftieth time in his life or whatever? I think that the essential I mean this is gonna sound wanky, but the essential truth of Mayakovsky is that these things are are inseparable. So a poem like Praeta, for example, a long narrative poem is equally about politics as it is about about his love even though it starts I mean it says Praeta it's called about this and the this that it refers to is is specifically love I mean directly spoken of as but equally it's a it's a political poem about how in some not really fantastical socialist future there is the possibility of love not simply being some sort of individual relationship between a man and a woman but love being something wider and more general inside an entire society and that's something you do have to you do have to reflect I think I mean you said that Yangfeld's biography kind of played down the politics but I think one of the things that it does do is Make it clear the extent to which Mayakovsky wasn't simply a political spokesman for the changing ideology of the of the Soviet government of the time. I mean, I think that it shows that it shows very clearly the moments at which he stood apart from that, but still in a political sense, obviously. So that
5: you go by the breath. You you hear the breath in the poem. It's uh, it, it is inseparable. Uh, no matter how the poet write. You, you, there is a smell of steel in some long lines, just a smell, you just physically feel it. And some are really free and, uh, like I would say care, carefree in a way. And some are, you, you feel the suffocation of the kind you, one feels when we read, uh, when one reads uh, Bloch's latest poems. It's just the physical sense of suffocation. And I think that may also be Mm -hmm. one one of the answers to to your question. We're very grateful to you that you came here tonight. It's wonderful to to see so many people
4: come out and listen to Russian poetry.
5: Especially in translation. translation, It's not very easy to listen to poetry in translation. We're very grateful.
4: Anyway,
3: thank you very much, Robert,
0: Boris, Mm -hmm. Irina, James and Stephen.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand.